Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. I am so glad you're here today. Have you ever thought about what school is like for a learner with ADHD? I mean, we all know some of these characteristics, right? Trouble paying attention, distractibility, memory issues, lack of organization. Now, we take that student with those traits and we put them in a classroom where what is really, what are those, what traits are we looking for? But can you pay attention? Can you sit in that desk and hang in there with me? Can you stay organized and find your work? Think about how difficult it might be for our learners with ADHD. So I've invited one of my favorite people in the whole universe, Kevin Roberts, to talk. He did another podcast with me early and got a ton of listens. So I want to invite Kevin back. He is an author in the ADHD field and also in cyber addiction. He's written numerous books. The one we're going to talk about a little bit today is Movers, Dreamers, and Risk Takers, which is about ADHD. Kevin speaks many languages. He's funny. He's charismatic. He's witty. He's charming. He is Kevin Roberts. How are you, Kevin? I am doing really well. And after that introduction, I'm doing even better. <laughs> Susie's had a little bit of coffee this morning. Okay. I have, well, I haven't really, but I'm hyperactive without coffee. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to talk to you because, you know, I've, I, I've mentioned to you, I've been doing a lot of research on this. I, I know a, a hundredth of what you know. But I'm in buildings a lot. Then I've been doing this research, and I'm really just I'm worried about some of our ADHD learners. I'm just going to say it. So let's talk about school. We talk about we take this child who's got a lot of strengths, right? But maybe not the strengths that are that are really great for for high school U.S. history or whatever. So they tell us what's going on here. Why is it a, a, a kind of a mismatch or trouble in school sometimes? Well. I think, Susie, one of the things that we have to begin with, our starting point, really, when we're talking about ADHD, is that we're talking about individuals who have brains that are different. This is the whole situation, the differences in ADHD, the troubles, the strengths, really derive from meaningful, observable differences in the brain. So, What that boils down to, in a lot of ways, is an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, the front part of the brain. And that part of the brain is heavily dependent on a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And dopamine is what gives us a feeling of reward. When you see squirrels outside uh, scurrying to collect nuts when it gets cold, their brains have elevated levels of dopamine. Our ability to focus our ability to pay attention, our ability especially to pay attention to material that we really find boring, that's all mediated by dopamine. ADHD people process, their brains process dopamine irregularly. And so what that means is, is that if information is not salient, if it's not interesting, if there's not a certain intensity or a certain excitement behind the information or the way it's presented, the ADHD brain will generally struggle to sustain attention through that information. And so this is not about poor character. It's not about laziness. It's not because the parents of that child didn't discipline that child. It is because of the way that child's brain is built. So what happens is if I'm in a classroom and I'm required to pay attention to boring and mundane and ordinary stimuli, my brain's not going to cooperate with me. 
And my brain is not going to process dopamine in a way that allows me to pay attention to that material. So that means my attention is going to wander. I'm going to be distracted. I might be focusing on the birds chirping outside. I might be focusing on the patterns of the boy sitting in front of me on his shirt. Um, I might be in my own world. I might be uh, so distracted that I get out of my desk or my leg shakes because I've got all this excess energy, this distracted energy going on inside of me. But it all comes down, Susie, to the way the ADHD brain is constructed, and it just makes a lot of aspects of school really difficult. You know, it's so fascinating. And uh, I've read something recently, and I've read this in numerous places, and this hit home to me. So I want you to comment on this. I read a researcher say that ADHD learners, they they're sometimes think of it this way, like they have this explorer gene, and they're sort of in a world that's not for explorers. Like at one time in history, they might be out there finding new settlements, hunting for food. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, my, fir- my first book on ADHD was called Movers, Dreamers, and Risk Takers. And ADHD people, we, uh, many of us, were kinesthetic learners. We need to move. We are hands-on learners. We learn by being active. Uh, the risk takers were people who have a penchant for intensity, We like things to be intense. You know, if we're ADHD and we manage to get through medical school and become doctors, you're more likely to find us in the emergency room. If you want to find an ADHD doctor, go to an emergency room. Likely the doctor there, an intensity loving, an intensity preferring individual will likely have ADHD. Um, So, yeah, I mean, if you prefer intensity, if you are designed neurologically to explore, to experience new things, to prefer neurologically what we might call novelty, school is is generally not any of those things. I mean, you might learn some information, um, but it's usually, you know, for an ADHD individual, it just usually feels like a plotting a very low level of stimulation that just doesn't rouse the ADHD brain, but put us out in nature, give us intense uh, stimulation. Maybe there's a project, maybe we have to, maybe there's a group project that we're part of in a classroom and we have to come up with some type of a design or some type of a presentation and we only have 25 minutes. Sometimes that's enough intensity to rouse the ADHD brain. But you see, ADHD people, We are good in intense situations in many cases. We're good in situations that require the interest in exploring new things, trying new possibilities, being required uh, to innovate. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, the classroom usually doesn't prefer those things. It prefers the opposite of those things, the ability to plod, the ability to plan, organize, keep still, keep your mouth shut, not engage with the material, just, you know, kind of do what you're told. And so a lot of us go through school and we, we end up getting negative messages about ourselves. We're not good enough. We don't have the skills needed, um, you know, for this situation. And so one of the major side effects of an ADHD diagnosis, Susie, is the damage to self-esteem. So we have these people capable of moving, of risk-taking, of dreaming, of exploring 
but they often feel really bad about themselves after, you know, 12 years of school. And oftentimes that self-esteem is one of the major things that prevents them from succeeding and achieving things they're capable of. You know what? I, I hate, I hate hearing that, but I can relate a little bit because, you know, gosh, as teachers, we're, we're under so much pressure. We've got these pacing guides, the curriculum of the standards, our learning targets, all this we're just trying to push so hard, you know? And, and then I think about sometimes with students who have ADHD, what, what they hear all day is turn around, pay attention, sit still, earth to you, you know, and, and it's got to take a toll. It's got to take a toll on them at some point. And then I'm thinking of the flip side where a lot of these students also have a lot of those characteristics of entrepreneurs. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Because entrepreneurs require entrepreneurship requires a willingness to take risks, a willingness to try new things. It often requires somebody who's not good at a job, but somebody who's good when they have a sense of purpose and when they have a sense of mission. Um, so yes, you go out. I just had somebody that I uh, had a one-on-one coaching session with who actually is an entrepreneur and he has a very successful business where he's kind of does manufacturing, uh, rep stuff for different companies. Um, he is finding that some of the ADHD stuff is preventing him from following through on details. So he's working on that, but the, the aspects of going out and getting new clients, uh, taking risks by going off in n- new ventures. He's got all those skills to a high degree. Now, this man who I you know talked to for today about an hour, um, he ha- he hated school and he did very poorly in school. But he's got a company that did four million dollars last year, and it's a company that he started. And so you know I share that example because so often uh, ADHD people are capable of great things. But school is often a breeding ground for doubt and low self-esteem. And so I think that if, you know, teachers out there, one of the things, I mean, you obviously, you know, can't, you know, completely alter the way that you teach. But what you can do is if you have one of these students, you can find ways of uh, uncovering that student's strengths and at least engage in some uh, small dialogue about it that, you know, you see potential in him or her you see some strengths and, you know, start a dialogue because you very well could, could be the person who makes a difference in that young person's life and maybe may, maybe helps her or him believe in him or herself. So uh, I've, but I've just, you know, heard hundreds of stories like this of, you know, these ADHD people who hated school, who did not do well in school, but then eventually got to adulthood and, you know, through family support and, you know, sheer power and force of will, we're able to forge uh, businesses and forge creative ways of making a living. Isn't that something? And I know one that we can, we've all heard of is, is the founder of JetBlue. And he openly talks about his ADHD and how his, um, his ACT scores were so low. The counselor told him he would have done better to just bubble, you know, than try, which that's brutal. Right. That's brutal. Uh, okay. So you're an ADHD coach and I'm really fascinated by what you do. So, and I'm trying to think in schools, if we have a person, we have people supporting students, but what I want to try to talk to you about now is, what you kind of do as an ADHD coach, and can we do more of that in the school setting? Help us out with that. Well, I mean, you know, what is coaching? Coaching is, a coach in this regard, is a person whose job it is 
to see your strengths. And then if I can see your strengths, that's my first job. My second job is to then help you map out the details of how you can actualize and use those strengths to have the kind of life you want and to have the kind of impact on this world that you're capable of. And so from that perspective, all teachers have the capacity to be an ADHD coach, to be a person who can see the strengths of that student and at the very least offer words of encouragement. You know, I know you're having a hard time, Jimmy, with these fractions, but you know, you got a lot of energy, you've got a lot of power, and you know, and math may be a struggle for you, but gosh darn it, I think you're going to do some great things with your life. You know, some simple words like that, especially from teachers in classes where that young person is struggling, words like that can be so powerful. And I've had adults come and tell me, you know, recount all of these, you know, dark and tragic experiences that they had in school. And and frequently, though, there was one teacher who left an impact. And often it was not a teacher in whose class the student did well. It was often a teacher where that student struggled, but the teacher was one who took time to create a connection and to see the strengths in that person. It's it, There's something powerful about getting a blessing, getting words of encouragement from somebody who teaches a class that I don't tend to do well at. So, you know, all of us can be coaches um, in the lives of young people. We can see their strengths. We can take pains to look past the liabilities. We can see their strengths and we can encourage them on their path. Well, I totally agree with that. And okay, I want to I talk about switch gears a little bit. And it has to do with physical activity, finding something they can do physically. And from some of my initial reading, and I want to ask you about this, it's looking to me like physical activity can actually be, be therapeutic for an ADHD student. Like they're, they're going to feel, and I guess you, you can explain to us what happens on the brain on that. And this is a, a big topic here right now, especially where I, I live. I can tell you that there was a, a state senator who's putting a bill out where we cannot take away P, uh, recess um, as part of a punishment because they, and that's for all kids. But then that made me think specifically about the ADHD student. So could you share with us a little bit about what you know about physical activity and particularly the ADHD student uh, thanks. Well, Susie, and I know that you understand learning styles because I've, you know, you and I have talked about this. You know, so some people are more visual learners. Some people are more auditory learners. And then there's this third category where people are kinesthetic learners. And you, you know, your listeners have probably heard of the School of Kinesiology of uh, University, which is the study of movement. And kinesthetic learners learn best when they're in motion. These are people who think in their bodies. So, you know, dancers would be kinesthetic learners. Uh, skate, a lot, of, a lot of kids, I, when I work with kids, a lot of kids I work with are with ADHD, a lot of them are skateboarders. Most skateboarders are going to be kinesthetic learners. They learn best when they are in motion. So, if you think about the fact that a good many, not all, but a good many uh, ADHDers are have kinesthetic learning as one as their primary and dominant uh, learning mode, if you take somebody who's a kinesthetic learner and you incorporate movement into the learning process, then 
that student is likely to learn better. I mean, you know, for instance, I mean, you can do something very simple like, um, you know, have kids walk around the room. Uh, if you're a parent at home and you have a child and you're teaching multiplications tables, do them on a trampoline. Uh, have the kid go to the top of the stairs, ask what six times nine is, then come down to the stairs, ask what five times four is. Just keep, you know, inc- find ways of incorporating movement into learning tasks. And what the research says, just on simple things like that, when you incorporate movement into specific learning tasks, that will improve retention, it will improve mastery, and it will, uh, it will overall improve the, the speed of learning as well, the processing speed. Now, that's one thing. So we can integrate movement into specific learning tasks. But uh, on top of that, when ADHD children are allowed to move uh, throughout the day, recess, take walks, engage in intense play, those children tend to do better in the classroom. They tend to be less distractible. They tend to be more able to pay attention. They tend to be able to regulate their behavior when they have adequate movement. So there's a school in Texas. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but they're, they're doing this pilot program of increasing the amount of opportunities for movement uh, within the school day. And they're finding that this is paying particular benefit to all students. I mean, it's, it's paying benefit to all students, but particularly to those with ADHD. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking in a second because I'm very long-winded, but I do want to say this to all you teachers out there and all you teacher trainers. 99 times out of 100, when you alter your teaching style to be more accommodating and effective with ADHD students, all the students tend to benefit. So when you integrate movement, you're, you're into the classroom, like, you know, let's say you you know, you have kids change desks, then you ask another question, change desks again, you ask another question. When movement is integrated, all students do better. And one of the reasons that this is, is it's because learning that is multi-sensory, when we engage multiple senses in the learning process, retention and mastery uh, increase. So um, no matter what it is we're talking about, if you integrate it into your classroom, uh, modalities that will help ADHD children generally will help everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. That active classroom, they just can't sit for very, I know I can't sit for very long either. I start kind of losing it. Me neither. Do they, do they, okay, this is a crazy question, Kevin. Do students that you, and it's so fascinating on the dopamine levels, but do, do ADHD students, do they tend to create some drama to kind of awaken that brain or is that a crazy thing I'm saying? Well, you know, Susie, that's an excellent question. And yes, one of the, there's a chapter in Daniel Amen's book. I don't agree. There, it's called, it's called Healing ADD. And I, I don't agree with some of the stuff in the book, but he has a chapter called Games ADD People Play. And the thesis of that chapter is that when we, if we have an underactive brain in boring, repetitive, mundane, mundane, routine situations, our brain is underactive. We unconsciously find ways of increasing our brain activity. Now, the way that I do it, Susie, I'm going to be honest with you, I create jokes. So if the teacher, you know, says a comment, uh, if there's a way for me to twist that comment and make other pe- and put a punchline to it and make students laugh, I'm going to do it. So I was the class clown and I, but why was I doing class clowning? Was I, was I doing it because I thought, gee, 
these children do not seem emotionally at ease. I'm going to tell a joke to uh, make people feel better and to uh, disrupt the tension in the room. No, I didn't have a conscious thought process. I was bored. And unconsciously, I'm, I'm a you know, relatively funny guy. I have the ability to tell jokes. So unconsciously, I would tell jokes. I would do funny things because it made me f- uh, feel more activated. I remember one time in seventh grade, I somehow got behind the teacher. She was talking, and I pretended like I was doing sign language interpretation of whatever she was saying. She, I didn't know this, but she had a cousin who was deaf, and she got so mad at me. I wasn't you know, dissing the deaf community. I was just trying to get my brain activated because listening to her talk about science was not engaging to me. So yes, we create a lot of drama. We create arguments. We like to get people mad at us. We like to tell jokes because this kind of stuff gets our brains activated. That is super fascinating. And and that kind of leads me to this path. You know, the the risk taking is one of risk taking risk is is one of those traits a lot of ADHD learners have. And and we see the benefit of those in an entrepreneur, in someone who can but we also want these learners to learn how to sort of measure those risks and think a couple of steps ahead. Because my concern is when they get out of school or even in school, they may get into some difficulties, some some trouble, some whatever you want to call it, from not thinking through and taking some risks. So how can you help us a little on that one? Well, that's a really great point. And I'm going to I'm going to bring it I'm going to bring my answer back to what I said at the very beginning of this podcast. It's all about the brain. And I'm going to tell you about a a structure in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And that structure is called the caudate nucleus and the caudate nucleus. There's one on each side, you know, because brains have parallel structures in the left and right side. The caudate nucleus is known to be involved in our ability to control impulses. Okay, well, how do we know that? We know that because there's been thousands of studies on this, and many of the studies have examined people who suffered traumatic brain injuries. When people with no history of impulsive behavior sustain a head injury that damages the caudate nucleus, those people often become impulsive. Okay, you following me? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now... We also know that ADHD children have a high incidence of genetic variants that are associated with the caudate nucleus. When we scan the brains of ADHD children, the, there is asymmetry, in other words, different, different shape between the right caudate nucleus and the left caudate nucleus. In the brain, Whenever one structure and it's parallel on the opposite side have asymmetry, that is always a sign of dysfunction. So if you take that, um, these facts, impulsivity is something that for ADHD people is built into the way their brain works. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to educate parents and teachers on this structure of the brain and then we must educate the children because the problem is when I'm impulsive and I say, and I'm not like physically impulsive, I don't like touch or push people, but I'm verbally impulsive. So I used to say stupid things. And then after I'd say them, I'd be like, oh God, why did I say that? But I didn't have the ability to control my impulses. But when people have impulsivity issues, especially verbal impulsivity, they get told things like, what were you thinking? Oh my God, you did it again. I can't believe you did that again. 
And so I'm getting all this negative feedback. It's damaging my self-esteem. But the truth is, I've got this caudate nucleus, most likely, that's just not cooperating. You know, I have a song about this, by the way. When you're bored in class and it's time to wait, you shout out and make the teacher irate. Must be that old caudate. Hey, hey, hey. Must be that old caudate. I'll leave you with that. That's the caudate nucleus song. But I use that song to teach people about the brain. I think that's the most important thing that we have to do because so often we liken impulsivity to poor character, laziness, bad parenting, and really it's about the brain. So we have to be really, really careful that we understand that because if we understand that, we're less likely to take it personally and we're more likely to be able to empathically, em- empathetically and compassionately deal with that person and help him or her find ways of regulating the, those impulses. And there's a whole variety of ways to do that. Um, and incidentally, one of the great ways, if you've got somebody really impulsive, dialectical behavior therapy is really uh, useful with impulsivity. D, I don't know if you've heard of DBT, but dialectical behavior therapy can be very beneficial. I've had many impulsive kids learn to control their impulses through DBT. We're all going to be Googling that, but I really love that song. You got a nice voice. Kevin didn't know. I learned that about you today. Okay. Grew up in, grew up in church. Well, there you go. Okay. So leave, talk to, now we'll just give you some time on your own here of, oh, okay, I'm an educator. Everybody listening to this is an educator or a parent of a student. What do you want them to know that maybe they don't already know to help these kids? Well, you know, Susie, and we didn't talk about my most recent book, which is called Schindler's Gift, How One Man Harnessed ADHD to Change the World. And my thesis of that book, which which gets to your question you want me to take on, is that Oscar Schindler, a man who saved 1,200 Jewish lives from the fires of the Holocaust, had ADHD, and that ADHD as a psychological paradigm explains his successes and his failures. So... How did Oscar Schindler, a young man who hated school, who was disciplined, corporal punishment back in those days, disciplined in school and eventually kicked out of school at age 16, how did a man like that who experienced repeated failures in business and repeated failures in a variety of areas of his life, how did a man like that go on to defeat one of the greatest empires, one of the most evil empires in the history of humanity? Well, first of all, Oscar Schindler had something that all ADHD people need. He had support. He had these wonderful Jewish businessmen who supported him and saw his his genius. Just like I told you about these teachers, how important it is to see their students' strengths and honor their strengths. Oscar Schindler finally had some people who saw his strengths. He also had intensity. The war years brought him the intensity that he had craved. He was never bored during World War II. The war years also brought him a sense of mission and a sense of purpose. ADHD people are often not good at jobs. We're often not good at tasks. But when we have a sense of purpose and a sense of mission that fires our passion, we are often exceptionally gifted at whatever the, whatever the task or the job is, if it's part of an overall mission uh, and purpose to our existence. So support intensity, a sense of mission, and a sense of purpose. And then the fourth thing is he had people who understood him and understood his strengths and his weaknesses. And those people during that brief period helped him to understand himself. As well, 
the reason Oscar didn't succeed after the war is, first of all, he all those things evaporated. He no longer had the support. He no longer had the mission. He no longer had the tense, intensity and sense of adventure. And he didn't have treatment because back in those days, we didn't have treatment. So it's very important to help ADHD people find a way to get treatment and uh, to get the help they need. And I know you did a really wonderful video on that that I'm going to link up. But uh, before I have my I have a couple more questions for you, could you tell us your website, your Twitter, how people can reach you? Um, yeah, my website is www.kevinjroberts.net, www.kevinjroberts.net. Yeah, don't forget the J, and it stands for Joseph. Um, and um, I also have a great Facebook page with 11,000 followers, and it's called ADHD Change the World. And it's it's largely based on the life of Oscar Schindler, but I share stuff on there about the positive aspects of ADHD. And um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful way to stay in touch. I do live videos there every week. Okay, I'm gonna, we'll link that up. I've got to check that out. I have not been there. Okay, I want to talk a little bit before we go about adults with ADHD because they have some of those characteristics, obviously, but they may have some different ones. For example, I read, and I want you to comment on this, somebody who works with an ADHD, they, he, and he talked about how there's sometimes a general feeling of just underachievement, disappointment in themselves. They can't get their act together. Things aren't working out. What, how does it look different or does it look different, an adult with ADHD as opposed to a, a child or a teenager? Well, first of all, my very good friend, Dr. Arthur Robin of Wayne State University Medical School, has long uh, highlighted and pushed on me the idea that the greatest side effect of an ADHD diagnosis, the most severe side effect, I should say, of an ADHD diagnosis is the damage to self-esteem. And so when we, you know, if we have a childhood uh, where our self-esteem is getting damaged and we're feeling bad about ourselves and, you know, dovetailing with the self-esteem is also self-efficacy, our ability to, uh, our, 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 our belief in ourselves and our ability to overcome challenges, uh, self-efficacy. Um, those things get damaged early on and they don't go away easily. So what we find with ADHD adults who have experienced this stuff, um, they will often self-sabotage. So they will get really close to, you know, achieving something. They'll take the initial steps. Things seem to change. And then at the last minute, they have had this history that seems to repeat itself, history of self-sabotage. You know, Oscar Schindler, by the way, started uh, racing motorcycles professionally and he even made he made it onto the professional circuit. Had articles written on him because he was such a um, you know gifted motorcycle racer. But then after about a year, he just gave up on it. You know, and that's classic of ADHD people. We you know we work hard, we get pretty far into something, and then all of a sudden we give up. We self sabotage, or we fail to have the persistence and the perseverance to push us through to the finish line. Um, so. Yeah, it's so common, Susie. And, you know, that's why I say uh, we really need support. I mean, I, I am an ADHD adult and I still have a variety of support structures. I work with an ADHD coach myself. I have a variety of friends who are ADHD with whom I share accountability. So I help hold them accountable. They help hold me accountable and they help me push past 
those self-sabotaging impulses and those self-sabotaging uh, behaviors. Because, you know, a third of people re- never outgrow ADHD. Those symptoms persist into adulthood. And, you know, you got to have all those factors that Oscar Schindler had during World War II if you want to succeed, if you want to push past the failure and the self-sabotage. I tell you, Kevin, you're just so interesting. I learned so much from you. I've got just multiple pages of notes here. I mean, I know what I'm going to take away is is really seeing their strengths, seeing their strengths, but then they're going to need some supports as well to really watch out for messages that can damage their self-esteem that will be really lasting in classrooms and schools to do everything we can to encourage movement uh, and getting kids up and, and, and helping them find some passionate projects and things that they can, doesn't have to be a project, but find things that they're passionate about and a sense of mission and their, their limitless potential. And I'm so glad you joined us today. Is there any, any final thoughts you'd like to add? No, I think this has been a wonderful discussion. I, I have appreciated uh, the questions you've answered. I, I think in you know a very short period of time, we've given teachers and perhaps even parents a roadmap to begin to make changes. Um, you know, if anybody, if you're really passionate about some of the stuff you heard, my most recent book, Schindler's Gift, How One Man Harnessed ADHD to Change the World, um, it has a section at the end of every chapter called Raising Schindler, which is geared towards teachers and parents. How do you treat this child? What kinds of things can you do with this child to help him or her change the world, to be somebody who has an impact on humanity? All righty. And like I said, we're going to link up Kevin's books and his website and his Facebook page so you can contact Kevin. Kevin, I do not want to close this podcast without thanking every educator out there for all the great work you do every single day. It is tough work, but it's the best job in the world. Join us every week for a, a conversation with an educational thought leader like Kevin Roberts. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you, Susie. Pleasure. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our author's work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert.